It's interesting that you say once a doctor, always a doctor. The kind of philanthropic work that you do, do you think it was informed by that, your passion for your profession? The type of philanthropic work I got involved in, it's not only from because of my profession, it has, it's a part of our culture in, within the family and within what I saw us as black people being. We are always interested in the well-being of the next person. So it's something that just happened. I really cannot say exactly what, but when people come with requests, it was informed by the need to respond to a need. But then in the end, I decided that I have to restrict whatever philanthropic, where I'm involved as in a board level or an executive level, it should be in the areas where I have the capacity. I want to talk about the maternal and child health care space. Um, and you were just speaking now about how you were involved in the reproductive health sector. What in particular did you think there was a need to focus on? Because I found, um, and this is obviously where you and I have met, that while people know about some things, they take them for granted. What was your thinking? How did you then decide to zero into this space? You know, health is not an absence of disease. That's one view one has to take. It's not just an absence of disease. There are so many factors that influence one's health. And in our case, it starts from education, which is really top, top of the list, that the better educated a person is, that's also what we found in countries where people have a high education, their disease profile is well managed because the people know. Then there's family planning, there's housing, sanitation. There are so many factors that contribute to a person's health. And one misses them all the time. In my case, I was recruited to work in the rep- when I stopped uh, private practice because before that I was in the private practice, uh, operating my own private practice for, for 11 years in Pretoria. Uh, I was recruited to work in the Reproductive Health Research Unit. At that time, HIV, they were doing research in, and also introducing antiretrovirals. That was the you know, the 1996, that was an a time when there was a great need for us to address the HIV pandemic in the country. Dr. Motsip, please tell me, um, I was recently having a conversation with um, one of our listeners who had the same unfortunate end to her pregnancy, that is, to, you know, her child dying at birth. And we started talking and the same things that I experienced, I found that she did as well. The, the old wives' tales, the, the cultural differences and how to interpret certain things. And I'd just like to hear from your experiences. What have you found? What can we improve in that? What we know as a people who've been disadvantaged in terms of access to quality health care, but still keeping that indigenous knowledge, how do we merge the two and improve on our well-being? You know, when I was in private practice, in the first private practice I was, I operated was in my village in Macau. I was exposed to all what we call, what in other cultures would be called superstition, beliefs, and what. But I learned prior to that to respect our indigenous knowledge. You know, there are 
all these plants and roots and herbs which had been used within the community, they are the beliefs. And I remember when I was working in Zimbabwe, that is where it really, really, uh, I became aware that we have to respect our indigenous knowledge. I'd been working in a psychiatry unit, psychiatric unit, where we used to apply electroconvulsive therapy. One of the patients, the, pa- the family just said, no, uh, we refuse hospital treatment, treatment, you know, we are taking him to our, to our traditional home. I saw this patient's files. He had been on sick leave three months and he wanted me to give him a letter. We argued and argued and I said, I can't give you a sick leave. You were away for three months. When I read the file, this man had been psychotic. Looking at this patient, he had been taken by his relatives to his traditional home. And here was this person who wanted to go back in his, to his job, well-dressed, very eloquent, completely, completely normal. That is when I realized that, yes, there is place for our traditional beliefs. beliefs. Yes, there is. Actually, one of my father's cousins, when I was in private practice, he said to me, you know, now that you know the Western medicine, you must come to me. I will now teach you our traditional medicine. I was young, and I said, sis, you know, (laughs) I just said to myself, sis, no, I don't want. But then with time, later, while I was in private practice, we actually had an agreement. Traditional leaders, healers, would bring their patients. Doctor, I'll go move just one week. And then after one week, if I don't succeed, this doesn't look like a Western illness. This is something... And sometimes, you know, I found that what we do, we talk, we dance, and some of the healing. And that, what, that is what in Western medicine would be said to be psychotherapy or group therapy. Because there is a way in which you address your feelings, your fears. Some of the illnesses that we have would be said to be psychosomatic because of your mental state and it ends up being interpreting itself as an illness. So I learned to respect. That is why nowadays there's that discipline of medicine which is called alternative medicine, and it is growing. Even if the research has not been done, it does have the effects. I'd like to hear more about um, some of the work that you do with the South African Civil Society for Women's Adolescents and Children's Health, and I'm looking more at the adolescent sector because that has been ignored quite a lot. Because we were so concerned about maternal and newborn and child health care and, and, and preservation of those lives, what kind of work are you doing with the sector? All right. This South African Civil Society Organization for Women, Adolescents, Children and Neonatal Health is actually a consolidation of, multi, of numerous non-governmental organizations local and international uh, non-governmental organizations. Every year we have a theme that we pursue that we are going to promote. Uh, In October, we are actually going to have promotion of breastfeeding in the workplace because that breast milk we know, that is also where you and I met the first time when we're promoting breastfeeding with this uh, 
you know, in Soshanguve. So every year we do choose a certain sector and the different non-governmental organizations that belong to this organization pursue whatever health-related, health-promoting yes, activities that they are involved in. You know, this Sunday, reading from the newspapers, I, my awareness was also raised about we know, of course, that we do have the highest incidence of HIV-AIDS among the, the mm. youth, 15 to 24 years of age. We also know that we have a high teenage pregnancy. But from the reports that I read in the newspapers, I was alarmed. We have to do something. We have to address our teenage pregnancies in a particular way. But uh, it's an area where we really need, apart from the youth having the problems of youth unemployment, you know, employment also contributes to a person's self-esteem, health, and general well-being. So it's an area where we really have to focus. Let's talk about early childhood development now. That's another area of passion for you. We were speaking about education earlier on. What are some of the work that you've done there? All right. I've been involved with an organization that promote, that is uh, involved in early childhood development what, since 2006, I was a, I've been a trustee and I've been the chairperson. You know, we always focus on metric results. Metric results is the roof and the trimmings and the interior decoration of our education. The foundation has to be solid. And as far as early childhood development, it really starts with conception because it's not just the parents' education, I mean, the child's education. The, the parent also, the mother also has to be in a state where she's well-nourished. And we also have to work with the mother. The parents, the initial focus, of course, are the children because the first thousand days of a child's life are the most important. That's an area where our work has actually been highlighted and facilitated by the National Development Plan because within the National Development Plan, there's a lot of focus on what are the targets that we should reach by 2030. So we decided, you know, the organization I've been involved in uh, was founded in the 30s within Soweto. There are now 40 crashes, formal crashes that are registered that have been operating there, all under what is, the organization has been called African Self-Help Association, Around 2008, when funds became, with a financial crisis, we, were, we had to restructure and find another way of operating. That's when we realized that there were children who were being given care in informal households, backyards, garages, containers, caravans. And at that time, about four to five million children were not benefiting from early, you know, proper uh, promotion of programs. So we decided that that is where we are going to be involved in. We operate in those areas. These are really entrepreneurs who start their own businesses, running crashes out of passion, or it's a way of putting food on the table. But we aim to make sure that those children who are in these crashes are in a safe, secure, stimulating environment where they also get proper nutrition. We have 
we are now operational in four provinces, Gauteng, Limpopo, uh, Northwest, and since the beginning of November last year, we've got 50 crashes in the Western Cape. We depend on corporate social invest, uh, you know, funding because we are not funded by the Department of Social Development. In addition to that, we've also realized that we have to have a way of having income-generating activities. What we do, we take a district which is within easy access of our trainers. Once a week, the trainer goes to the facilities, and once a week, the practitioners, the crash owners, and whoever they want come to a central place. Uh, we first have an audit of each crash, what is needed. We train the people on-site. There's on-site uh, assistance to make sure that the facility complies to six government departments. And our training that we have is in acting, novel, comic, textbook form, uh, acting, as I said, in a way that is um, that can be you know the, that can be accepted because most of the people who run these crashes do not have formal education. Mm. We've succeeded even registering one of our courses with the CITAS. It's accredited, nationally accredited. Uh, the course that we uh, teach the, the the men and women, the ladies and men who run these crashes. Now the incentive is that all the crashes must comply to six government departments. Once they do comply, then they are registered with the Department of Social Development, and then they qualify to receive a grant. The grant is in the form of 15 rand per day per child, which really amounts to quite a substantial amount for the crash, because most of the people who send their children to these informal caregivers depend on their social support grant to pay the school fees. You find that they pay about 70 rand, 90 rand. This is an amount that they can afford to pay for the child to be in a safe place while they go, you know, the mother goes to work. Some of these children, their mothers themselves are school-going teenagers. And uh, at least once they get the social support grant, it's not discouraged that the, the parents still pay but that ensures the sustainability of the business. This is a business. You know, you can't believe, I wish you had come on, when there was a China State visit, we had one of our certification programs where we give them the people who had finished doing a certain course were giving certificates. How they relate, they what they have benefited, how they are able to run their crashes, the money management, the financial management, the Child Care Act. Of course, it starts with the legislation, mm. like everything else, that they understand the legislation. And it really empowers these people who run their crashes. We are also impressed that more and more young people are involved in early childhood development, either as crash owners or employees at crashes. Now, we can say that our work really responds to the government's imperatives of addressing poverty, unemployment, and also education. 
we are responding to that. That is the work that we do. Just a final question, and perhaps more on an anecdotal note. As a mother, when you look at early childhood development now, and back then when you were raising uh, toddlers and, and, and infants, what do you notice has changed? You know, our children now, in the, even the informal crashes are so... Because of the nutrition, when, I, when you look at the children, I can't help but also notice that they are not, the stunting has been addressed. The children do not have uh, liquids from the eyes, yellow liquid from the eyes, the ears, the mouth. And the children are confident. When, if you Google and look at, I mean, if you look at our website and see how these children are confident, they can, their vocabulary has increased. And the children are able to spell, they do their, all their, their faculties, like the eye moto and the vocabulary have really benefited. During the time when my children were at crash, the only places that were suitable then, there was a place where I used to take one and the last one once a week, then I used to take her twice a week in a, like a play group. But it was only possible to take a child age of three to a formal crash. At least now, it's something that starts early. And the children are so confident. You can see that the foundation has been laid to ensure that they will not drop out. They will be able to reach tertiary education and be, you know, contributing members of society.